1: going on, guys? You've got Evan Knowles and Logan Jones here at the Middle Tech Podcast. Uh, We just had a conversation and I was taking notes the whole time. Uh, So Andrew Goldner is the founder and CEO of GrowthX. They are there to serve founders and provide some funding. uh, And their specific uh, domain is go-to-market strategy. So they're helping founders with the go-to-market strategy. Uh, And we just sat down and talked about what that means and some of the particular subtopics around go-to-market. So you know, this really resonated with me. My background is sales and go to market, uh, and so I just really respected the amount of expertise and knowledge and wisdom, specifically this man had. So he's worked with numerous, numerous companies from Silicon Valley. You know, he was part of the early team at um, Thomas Reuters. He's worked on Salesforce. He's worked for companies acquired by Google. So this guy exact knows exactly what he's talking about, um, and had some really great points uh, throughout the conversation.
0: Yeah. And if you're wanting to learn more about uh, sales and marketing, this is a must listen for, you You know, Evan just mentioned that he was, he was literally taking notes on his company Miro board as we were talking to to Andrew here. And it was one that as I was listening to, I was like, there is so much packed into this. I'm going to have to go back and literally take notes for myself that I can go and back, go back and apply to the startup I'm working, working for right now, because so much of what we talked about here is a lot of my job. Um, So there are some questions that were just genuine questions that just popped into my head that I plan on going and applying directly to the job that I do. So, you know, we discussed things like uh, why go-to-market strategy is front and center for early stage businesses um, versus, you know, product development. Uh, We dove into specific subtopics with that go-to-market strategy. uh, And we also discussed what is going on in Nashville in relation to their technology and startup scene. You know, that that, that city is just absolutely exploding right now. We've got all sorts of friends that are moving down there. Uh, we enjoy going down there for the entertainment side of things, but there's also this really flourishing and emerging technology and, uh, and startup scene. So Andrew is a great guy to talk about all that. He's got lots of experience working with companies down there in Nashville, and we're really looking forward uh, to you guys listening into this. So if you guys get anything out of it and you feel like sharing it with us, we'd love to hear what you guys learned from this episode, uh, but we're going to go and dive on in. We're excited for you guys to listen. Let's go. All right, guys. So before we dive into these interviews, we just want to take a second to highlight our sponsors they are going to be sponsoring season four of the Middle Tech podcast. Uh, So the first one we're going to go over is Land Betterment Corporation. So they're going to be sponsoring, like I said, all of season four, and they're working hard to bring sustainable developments to uh, eastern Kentucky, places that need it so badly, what they're doing is taking old and abandoned uh, coal mines and strip mines and putting sustainable businesses in their place that can help support those communities. So definitely go and check them out. Their website is landbetterment.com. They're doing some awesome things in this region.
1: Yeah. Next, we've got uh, Brandon Johnson. So I've personally worked with Brandon Johnson. Uh, He is a lawyer, an attorney that works with uh, businesses, specifically startups in this region. Uh, He is from Kentucky. He's from Fordsville, Kentucky. He got his law degree from the University of Louisville. Uh, he's worked with Papa John's, Little Slugger, Instagram influencers that are making millions of dollars, real estate investors, you name it. Uh, but he loves what he does. He really loves helping small businesses, helping entrepreneurs get the right footing. Uh, because one of the most important parts of starting your business, if you're serious about it, is getting an attorney, making sure that all of your documents and corporation documents, uh, operating agreements, shareholder agreements, things of those nature are in check. And Brandon is there to help you with that. And again, I've worked with him uh, and he does a great job. He makes it fun. He's very personable and I enjoyed uh, working with him. So we appreciate him for for sponsoring this season. All right, go and dive into it. All right, everybody, thanks for joining us. You've got Evan Knowles and Logan Jones here with the Middle Tech Podcast. Uh, we're excited for our guest today, who's actually down in Nashville. Uh, so, as we talked about in the intro, you know, we're trying to expand, you know, our presence here in in this region of the United States, and so we're starting to get more guests, you know, outside of Kentucky, uh, but we always want to stay, you know, near to Kentucky. And so, uh, today we've got Andrew Goldner, who's the CEO, uh, co-founder of GrowthX, and he's wearing an awesome uh, pullover right now. Uh, welcome, Andrew.
2: Thanks. I am grateful to be here and super excited about our conversation today, guys. Looking forward to uh, talking with your audience.
1: Yeah, we really haven't uh, sat down and how to uh, go-to-market specific conversation, which is going to be the bulk of a lot of what we talk about today. You know, we've talked about product design. Obviously, we've talked about uh, just a high-level overview of starting companies with so many entrepreneurs. But I'm really looking forward to diving into just the go-to-market and the sales and marketing side of things. Yeah. That oftentimes, you know, founders are more technical and they don't have that kind of background. Um, and you know, we're looking forward to sharing that wisdom that we know you have. So before we get into any of that, uh, let's jump into your background. So give us a brief overview of where you're from, your education and, and any kind of professional background you want to cover up until, you know, you started GrowthX.
2: Yeah. Thanks guys. Um, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, very proudly. Um, I like to say that since leaving Ohio, I haven't lived in a normal place. And since, since moving to Nashville, <laughs> I went from uh, Ohio to Washington D.C. to New York City to Hong Kong to Singapore to Palo Alto to Nashville, wow. and so everything between Ohio and Nashville I consider non-normal. Uh, and so I'm super happy to uh, to be to be in Nashville for sure. Um, I've been involved in technology for over 20 years, so some of the gray hair as you're seeing, I've earned them. Um, I was uh, I started out my career as a tech lawyer and just got super, super lucky um, just to be in the right place at the right time. This was the mid 90s when the Internet was first commercializing. And, you know, I certainly didn't know anything about being a lawyer, uh, but I knew how the Internet worked. Uh, And that made me uh, an outlier from just about every other every other attorney at my firm, especially the partners. And I just decided I wanted to make a career focused on technology, and so I just leveraged, you know, that understanding into a practice where 100% of what I did as, a, as an attorney, uh, whether it would be M and A or corporate finance or licensing work uh, or just general contract work, was all around technology, uh, and that took me inside of DoubleClick. So while I was a, while I was a, an attorney inside of a of, of a large firm, I've worked at you know, and for, you know, many of the early internet pioneers, uh, including Alta Vista and Priceline, you know, back in 1999 when Mark founded Salesforce. Um, and then when I left the firm, I went into DoubleClick, one of the early ad pioneers. Um, and uh, and when we got acquired by Google, I joined the Thompson family in Canada, uh, the wealthiest family in Canada that owned a significant number of, of, of assets, but had been really operating them as more of a portfolio as opposed to operating entities. And so when I got involved, um, I got dropped into Thompson Financial, uh, doing sophisticated FinTech transactions as the company was really accelerating, starting to operate a lot of their different entities together. And I was fortunate enough to do that for a few years um, when a few of us at at the company had the idea to start our own news business rather than just license that news business from third parties. And so we created what became known as Thompson Financial News. Um, and after a short while, uh, the company and the Thompson family realized that this, this was going to be important and, and bought Reuters. Um, and so when we became Thomson Reuters, um, I was fortunate enough to become publisher of Reuters News. You know, one of the more amazing opportunities I've had in my entire life, I consider those journalists to be the best in the world. And I've been privileged to get to know some of them. That journey also is what took me out to Hong Kong Um, And in Singapore, Um, and after about uh, seven years, um, you know, I decided it was time to get back to the United States. A lot of Facebook photos that we weren't in with the family Um, and uh, and also just wanted to get back to the early stage. I really missed the early technology stage, the early product stage, the early company stage. Um, And so uh, moved back to the United States um, and instead of returning to New York, went to Silicon Valley. Um, And it was along that journey that, you know, I realized some things and and had some ideas and and met some people and um, joined a bunch of company early stage, um, you know, started my own company, what I call an expensive learning opportunity. Um, And it was it was really that journey that I was I was blessed to meet my now co-founders and start GrowthX.
0: Very cool. Awesome. So let's dive in a little bit to what GrowthX specializes in. As we kind of talk about more of this go-to-market strategy, yeah. Uh, so when we got on the on the phone to talk about uh, GrowthX and what you guys are doing, uh, you talked a lot about you know demystifying venture capital. So talk a bit about what GrowthX is and how you guys are working to do that.
2: Sure, sure. I mean, we are a venture capital fund, um, and and that's our primary purpose. Um, what's very different though is how we go about practicing it, how we interact with founders, and primarily how we go about. Uh, finding and qualifying great deal flow, you know, I like to say that what Mark Benioff did to on-premise software, I'm trying to do to the demo day. Um, it, there's a, it's it's become a bit of theater, um, and and there's you know the flowery narrative and the top-down view that a pitch deck will provide, um, but it, as it turns out, helping someone uh, is an extraordinarily powerful form of due diligence. And so we've figured out how to do that and now how to do that at scale. And so there's our tagline, founders find product market fit, and we find qualified investment opportunities. Uh, You know, tongue in cheek, I refer to it as the only form of legal insider trading in America.
1: That makes sense. That makes total sense. Uh, And when you got on the phone with us, you told us a, a story, the the millimeter. Uh, story. Of, oh, the Nylometer. Uh, yeah, yeah. Nylometer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally yeah. butchered that. Yeah, that's that okay. pronunciation. <laughs> Talk about that, because I thought that was a. I thought that was a good, good story that um, can can relate to how people view you know venture capital today.
2: Sure. Thanks. And I obviously you know I'm going to do a bit of generalization here, but I, you know I've got venture capital colleagues around the world who are just amazing. I'm also privileged to be a member of the Kauffman Fellowship and and for me you know that's a community of over 500 venture capitalists around the world who 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 practice not only best of class venture but also behavioral fitness you know they are really ushering in a whole new generation of of leaders in the venture capital profession uh that not only are pushing the asset class forward in terms of performance but primarily because the behaviors of the VCs we think are just, are changing. So certainly don't want to suggest that we're out there all alone, uh, you know, doing this, um, you know, as a party of one. Um, you know, the Nylometer story is a story that I tell when I run a popular series of, of venture capital workshops, or or, or, or including at, at Vanderbilt University, you know, here in town. Um, the Nylometer, um, it, you know, I usually flash a picture of the nilometer up on the screen to whoever it is I'm presenting to you, And I invite anybody to call out and tell me what they think it is. And we get a really fun conversation about what it is and what it has to do with venture capital. And what the nilometer actually is, it's the it's the Nile meter. It's a meter stick, a ruler for the Nile. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in ancient Egypt, on the banks of the Nile, there were beautiful buildings that were religious. Um, they were temples. Um, and because they were temples, um, only the religious class was allowed inside them, the priests. The priests were the ones that had the knowledge, the priests were the ones that had the access to education, and according to the priests, they were the only ones that had access to God, and it was through that relationship that they were able to predict for the people of Egypt whether there would be essentially feast or famine. And they controlled the people by doing that because they appeared to be wise. They appeared to have the insights um, from a deity because they did a pretty good job relative to the average person of predicting feast or famine. And so uh, as it turns out, what they had was data. (laughs) It was was kind of the early uh, data informed decision making because inside of that fancy building that they called a church, and cloaked in the garb of of religion um, was the Nilometer, And it was just a, a huge column that went very deep into the earth. And over a long period of time, the priest class that had access to that temple was able to measure the relative rise and fall of the Nile. And because they had that data at the time, of course, they were able to better predict feast or famine just based on what they had seen in the past and what they were currently seeing and extrapolating that information. And the reason I love telling that story is for such a long time in my profession, I feel like we as VCs operated very much like the priests. You know, we joke, right? We've got our Patagonia vests um, and the priests cloaked themselves in in clothing that nobody else had. we have fancy buildings on Sandhill Hill Road that are hallowed in the profession with expensive art on the wall, and not everybody is allowed inside. We use terms that sometimes feels like are meant to purposefully obfuscate the truth, right? What does non-participating liquidation preference mean? Like that is a non-English word. Um, and, and, And why is it that a founder from Nashville needs to hire an expensive counselor to sit between themselves and their funder in order to understand what the funder is saying and what their rights are? Right. And so if you if you look back into the Nile River area in ancient Egypt, those priests used terms that were meant purposely to obfuscate. And they did that to maintain control of the people, to protect their own power. And so this idea of of all of a sudden the trend where VCs need to be more founder friendly, it's just something that we object because of the underlying premise. You know, it is a partnership from day one, you know, and and when you behave in a certain way and, and when founders need to come to you and beg time on your calendar and when you disappear into the room every Monday with your partners and have your hallowed partnership meeting and afterwards come out with a proclamation about who gets funded and who doesn't with a simple email to a founder that says we pass and you load up your term sheets with non-English terminology that a founder has to spend money to hire someone to translate. Well, what do you expect is going to happen? And so, you know, again, um, we just reject that. You know, one of the things that we've always done at GrowthX is rather than that partner meeting I referred to, a common practice in venture capital, we actually just invite the founders into the conversation and we make the decision in front of them. We talk about them like they're not in the room. Right. And one of the things that makes sure that we do, and it holds us accountable for is it makes sure we're not having any conscious or subconscious bias. Cause if that's happening, we need to be called on it because we're learn it all's and we're trying to be better and so by having the conversation in front of the founders it forces us to make decisions in ways that ought to be defensible that ought to be based on things that that are good logical sense um and so we don't we don't meet in private and then declare in public we just talk out openly with founding teams and we decide together whether it's a good fit or not
0: yeah i love that that's uh i think pretty much everyone can appreciate adding more transparency to an industry that a lot of people, like you, like you mentioned, are going to view and, and hear all the words and see all that goes on, and just think this is above above my head. This is not something I can break into. Whether you want to break into the funding side of it, or whether you're a founder, a first time founder maybe, uh, who's trying to understand all the all the jargon and everything that goes into it. So I think that's a, a great analogy. Um, let's talk real briefly here for a second about what's the state of, of venture capital in America right now, and then in Nashville specifically.
2: Oh, I'm excited about it. I mean, you know, writ large, you know, and by the way, not just in America, you know, we're highly active globally now. We can get into that later if you want, but we can share a perspective that's not just the U.S., not just Nashville. But in that context, I'm 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 pumped. I mean, especially for Nashville, you know, we have, you know, amazing, you know, amazing folks that are moving here every day and, and adding to the amazing folks that we already have here. You already have a strong, you know, history of great investors here in Nashville, you know, primarily in health tech, but not exclusively, but we have a rich history of great investors and great founders in Nashville that way. Um, and to add to it, you know, we have great people moving here all the time. Um, you know, Third Prime, West Barton, just moved here from New York City, a great SaaS investor Um, who chose for the right reasons to be here and is now spending his time and his resources building relationships with founders and earning the opportunity to make more deals here in Nashville and, of course, around the Southeast. And that's just one of many, many examples of how Nashville is attracting people for the right reasons to add to what was already awesome here and bring about a venture community that's focused in it beyond the successes that we've seen um, in health tech. You know, you have uh, Jane, the you know the new CEO of the National Entrepreneur Center, who's just taken that organization to another level. You know, bringing founders who have never stepped foot in that building into that building, bringing not only founders at the early stage, but she's bringing in as her, she herself is highly successful founders who have built and sold companies who can be a resource for each other and then also be a resource to the founders that that organization serves. And really, I could just go on and on. You know, I think obviously with COVID-19 and now COVID-20, the profession, like any profession, has had to adapt. Um, The 44th investment that I made, I have to this day never met the founder. That's a radical thing for a VC to say. Yeah, there was a whole lot of Zoom calls, but I've never spent personal time with that founder. We have no qualms with that. I think more VCs are having to adapt. You know, early on in COVID, I saw a lot of really interesting conversation among my Kaufman colleagues on the different chat sessions that we're privileged to have access to um, and the virtual sessions that we had in 2020. Talking about that, what does due diligence mean when you can't spend time with the founder? You know, what kind of conversations do you have with your limited partners who are looking you to deploy capital in a certain period of time to return that IRR, that's best of class, in a situation like like COVID? And oh, by the way, um, you know, to take a term that Jeffrey Moore popularized in Crossing the Chasm, the early adopter what we've seen, and you know, what we've coined is the early adapter. You know, we've seen the rise of the venture class, we've seen the rise of the founder class, because listen, in times of crisis, entrepreneurs rise to the challenge. It's just a part of our DNA. It's a part of having an abundance mindset and not a scarcity mindset, where most people see a challenge, we entrepreneurs see an opportunity. And so I think you know, after the initial shock um, at the early part of 2020, founders and their partner funders reacted um, and, you know, and we've seen, you know, um, venture not only just continue to be active, but in fact, see brand new opportunities and brand new paths to, to huge scalable growth because of the behavior that we're all now adapting to in the, in the new kind of real world.
1: Yeah, love that insight, um, and we'll get back to Nashville specifically and dive you know deeper into that there uh, towards the end of, of our conversation. But let's let's transition from venture capital more towards you know go to market, which is what you guys are really helping these companies you are investing in um, achieve. Is their go to market strategy? Uh, talk about from a high level, you know what you all do with these these startups and their journey. Um, you don't have to go through the details, but from a high level, what does it look like to engage with you if you were to invest in, in a startup?
2: Sure. Happy to talk about that. Maybe we could just spend a couple of minutes first talking about why we think it's important, if that's yeah. okay. Yeah, for um, sure. You know, we now live in the age of applied technology, right? This is what Mark Andreessen was referring to when he said that software is eating the world, right? Now that technology has become so much uh, cheaper and, and so less complex, and so many more people know how to build. Um, it's no longer the focus primarily on the creation of technology, although, of course, that's that's still happening in abundance. But what we've seen is a transition from a focus on the, the creation of technology and the funding of prototypes to the application of existing technology and the fit into the market of that technology. But here's the stark reality, guys. In Silicon Valley and in many ecosystems around the world, if you know how to, if you know how to build products and you start a company, you're known as a founder. But if you know how to sell products and you start a company, you're known as a non technical founder. And it's meant, no mistake, it's meant as a second class citizen, a second class status of founder. But But again, how does that make sense? In my world, it ain't dog food unless and until I see a dog eating it. And only then does it become dog food, right? Nothing happens until someone sells something. Take a look at over the last 30 to 40 years and the revolution in go to product. Why do we live in the age of applied technology now, right? Because of what has happened over the last 30 to 40 years to enable go to product in a way that was never existing before. I challenge you guys to name the Ruby on Rails of market development, or point out to me the GitHub of sales, or the Heroku of biz dev, and for the global proliferation of product development boot camps and computer science degrees. Again, I challenge you, name a single market development bootcamp and a single sales degree. They just don't exist. Very few colleges and universities in this country and elsewhere not only don't have sales degrees, including at the MBA level, they don't even have a single course on sales. And yet, we scratch our head in wonderment why most founders are failing because they're building shit people don't want, right? And so why are we doing what we're doing? It's because nobody's done it before. And so we've just simply taken the same approach that engineers have done to usher us into this amazing age of applied technology. And we've applied it to go to market, right? We've codified the path to product market fit because as it turns out, Products and markets may be unique, but the path to finding product market fit is not. It's a formula. And by the way, we, of course, did not invent it. What we're talking about is something that's existed long before us, right? The commercialization of a product is as old as business. But because we are not teaching the founders and we are not enabling them to go to market with a structure and a framework and a common language that we know exists in product development, well, of course, they're going to improvise. They're going to wander the the desert. Innovation belongs in the product roadmap, not the market development roadmap. And the last point I'll make there is the single largest educator and supporter of founders in this world today are these accelerators and there's thousands of them but they teach founders how to raise money not how to make money they equate investor readiness with talking to a vc when investor readiness is the natural byproduct of talking to a customer but again if you're not taught to do that and the final point i'll make as I get to answering the question you asked me um, is take a look, what's happened over the last 10 or 20 years with digital marketing. If you are either selling something that's B2C or one of your acquisition channels is digital marketing, Google analytics, just by example, Google tag manager is so easy. Even I can use it. I can drop in my tag manager and I can flip on uh, a Google Analytics tag, uh, a Facebook remarketing tag, LinkedIn remarketing tag, dozens and dozens and dozens of cookies that I can drop in there. That enables me in real time, and, and for no charge, Google will show me rich infographics, analytics, and insights Allowing me to slice and dice and understand of all of my customers, who are the customers that I want to try to go get more of because they were easier to get to my website. My message, their problem was connected easily on an advertisement. They came to my website and with conversion rate optimization, I could bring them through my funnel. I could show the customer journey. I could highlight the areas of friction all through this rich analytics. Well, guess what? When you're talking with humans, there is no Google Analytics, but the process can be replicated and in the need to understand who your best customers are and what their characteristics are and what the message is for them and the customer acquisition channel for them and the customer journey for them, there is a way to do what we call digital growth hack, excuse me, analog growth hacking, which is to set up the systems and the behaviors and to interact with the market with intention. So no, there isn't a Google Analytics that's going to do it for you, but you can just for free open a Google sheet And if you understand how to interact with the market and you train your signal to pick up their signal, and instead of leaving it in your head or in your email box, you put it in a Google Sheet and you organize it and you analyze it and you come up with insights about it in the same way you do with Google Analytics, well, lo and behold, things start getting better, things start getting easier, things start getting more predictable, things start getting more profitable. And so... This is really what we've brought to it is we have taken that path to product market fit and codified it and given it a common language and a structure and a framework and a set of enablement exercises where founders apply in real time what we're helping them do to take that path to product market fit and find not product market fit necessarily, but always the truth. And so there's a few different ways that founders work with us. We're about six and a half years old as a fund. And for the last about five years, the way the founders would work with us was after we invested in them. So we built our market acceleration program, which is that codified path to product market fit, and we put it inside the fund and we put it behind our investment and not in front of our investment. And therefore, it was like a reverse paywall. We can't help you until we give you money. And that's where our hypothesis was because we wanted founders that were interested in not just our money, but they wanted our help, right? What we're looking for more than anything are learn-it-alls and not know-it-alls, right? You can't help a know-it-all. And so when someone raises their hand and say, I'm setting my ego aside, I'm oriented towards winning, what you're talking about is something that I'm relatively weak on and I would like your help doing it. Now we're on the track to a potentially good investment and that market acceleration program, you know, again, for all that fancy terminology, effectively it was like a human consulting firm inside of a venture capital fund. Right. And as you guys know, carbon-based life forms are non-scalable. It's just an inherent problem we have. And so even though we're proud to have our 44 investments across two funds and proud to have had five exits so far, um 44 is a relatively low number and when all you're relying on is a bunch of humans to work alongside other humans and help them well again you know unless you're interested to hiring hundreds and hundreds of people and now you're in the agency problem right more founders to help so need more people have more people so need more founders to help no thank you um And so again, it's something that we continue to operate. We operate it very successfully. When you get an investment from GrowthX, you're invited to enter the program and it's a highly structured program. And by the way, we do not get additional equity just because you're allowed to tell your friends you're in our program. No, we're only ever getting additional equity when you and your stakeholders believe that our help has helped you become more valuable. And then and only then do we unlock additional equity. And that keeps all the incentives aligned because guess what? Yeah, that means a founder could take advantage of us, right? They could come into our program and into our portfolio, allow us to help them and never give us additional equity. But our view is we don't want to own more of a company that's run by people that behave that way. Because we think ultimately they're going to be failures because they have that worldview, which is violent to our worldview. So we're already on the cap table. We wish them success, but we're not going to spend our time with them anymore. And by the way, we're certainly not going to follow on with any additional capital. Um, And so it operates differently than most, quote, accelerators. Um, We don't operate in batches or cohorts. We work with you one-on-one. There is no fixed period of time. We work with you as long as it takes to find the truth because where we sit is between seed and a, right? We help get you to that point where you have product market fit. And we're one of the few people who define that, right? You get to product market fit, which is still where the series a is now interested in beginning to invest. Um, And so, um, That's the way that we've historically operated our market acceleration program, and it's available, again, to folks that are already in the portfolio. Um, And then about a year and a half ago, we really turned our attention, our time, and our capital to try to do something bigger. Like the founders that we serve, we entrepreneurs, we also have a big, hairy, audacious goal. We want to help every founder in the world, and yes, in the process, we want to also earn Uh, deal flow with a strong source of signal from other founders in the world. Um, And so we created an online version of our program and it's called MXP Online. And that's where we've now gone global because now that we have silica and not carbon, right? Where founders can help themselves to our expertise and we now have a digital window to peer through to verify the behavior of the founders at learn-it-alls who are making a priority of go-to-market and not just go-to-product, and where we can see how the market is initially responding and whether there is that early sign that might lead to product-market fit, that's the source of signal. And that's where we and the venture capital partners that we have around the world invest. Um, And so MXP Online, is not only available to every entrepreneur in the world, but it's now also uh, available to the organizations around the world that support founders, and that's of course enabled us to go from one to few to one to many. And those are governments, uh, NGOs, you know, private organizations, you name it, who are who share our worldview um, and who don't want to reinvent the wheel. And who use our codified path to product market fit to help their founders? And again, every time they do, a little digital window opens up that I can peer through and trade on the only form of legal insider trading in America. It's just yeah. that simple.
1: Makes sense. And what you said earlier um, really resonated with me for a couple of reasons. What you were saying was, you know, the go-to market versus the um, go-go-to product. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm starting a company myself, and what you're saying about the go-to product, product becoming you know, much I wouldn't say easier, but much more clear for uh founders and especially, you know, engineers and developers. You know, we're using so many developer tools like Twilio uh and you know MongoDB, you know, these these traditional uh developer uh, you know these stacks that people used to have to build from scratch are now you know APIs, which is amazing. And so we're able to move very fast and iterate and listen to customers and adapt because of these awesome tools they're able to use. And so that yep. that's something I resonated with. And then the other thing you mentioned that, that I really resonated with, especially here in Lexington, Kentucky, because this is a struggle for so many startups here in Lexington, is finding that talent that's able to help you go to market, you know the SDRs and the people that are able to grind and help you understand your customers, because that's just not like you said, Todd. And so you know, I've had discussions with people around here on starting you know a sales bootcamp. Um, I've called sales bootcamps in this region up in Indianapolis, I called one, and was just on the search for these boot camps because they don't exist. You know, there's plenty of developer boot camps, but there's no you know go to market or, or sales boot camps. And that's what that's, right. of, that's what a lot of startups are struggling with around here. You know, there is technical talent building products, but then once they get to a certain point and the product's built, you know, they're looking around and they're having to hire people out of university and train them from scratch.
2: Yeah. Uh, and exactly your you're and it's not just Louisville. It's just yeah. it, it is. And I, I'm telling you, we have conversations everywhere around the world, every single day. We're talking to founders and the organizations that support them in Beirut, in Cairo, in Kosovo, in Palestine, in Israel, in Lithuania, in Singapore, in Kuala Lumpur, in Brazil. And I can just go on and on and on. And it's the same story everywhere. And a thing I'll go back to as well, Is, you know, even SDR, SDR is stage relevant if you're pre pre product market fit. The very definition of SDR is scale. You don't hire an SDR unless you have something that is scalable, because that's what an SDR does. You, as the founder, are the ones that are speaking with the customers, and you're not doing three-minute quick pre-qualification calls. Listen, I remember Aaron from my Salesforce days. Aaron's the one who invented SDR, Aaron Ross, predictable revenue. And even Aaron will tell you that it's changed drastically. But even when he created the SDR for Mark, they had something that was revolutionarily scalable, and he needed to bifurcate the sales process So that salespeople weren't qualifying, they were selling. And so how do we build a qualifier? And that's the SDR. But you don't want to be having two-minute qualification conversations when you don't have anything scalable. Learning precedes revenue. So get back to your question about actually how we help the founders. Well, this is one of the primary ways is, and part of it is our fault, the VCs, forcing scale down the throats of founders way before it should. Learning precedes revenue because not all revenue is created equally. You want to be doing things that are intentionally purpose-built to not be scalable. Um, We have a, a blog post on our website that I encourage everybody to go grab, which is basically every software company on the planet Pre-product market fit. The acronym SAS actually stands for service as a software, not software as a service. You want to be consultative. You want to be high touch. You want to be non-scalable because you haven't sold customers at that stage. You have brought on early partners who know that what you have is not whole and complete. And that are there to work with you to discover product market fit. That's what early adopters love doing. And so you want to be in there with your hands and your sleeves rolled up. I have so many founders that are either pitching me or working with me. And they're so shy about their non SaaS revenue. Because all they hear from VCs is we'll give you no credit for your non sas revenue. You need to be a million of ARR and SaaS revenue to qualify for Series A. First of all, as if the amount of revenue you have has anything to do with product market fit, it's one of the leading indicators of a false positive of product market fit. Just thinking that a million or 500,000 or some amount of revenue equals product market fit When that revenue might be entirely unprofitable and never profitable, that's not a path to product market fit, right? That's a path to a Ponzi scheme if you're not careful, right? And so what we help these founders understand is at the earliest stage, you actually want to be involved. When I meet founders, as is often the case, that had a consulting type of business, and now they're going to layer some software on top of it and become highly scalable, I love it. I want them to keep being consultative. I don't want them to shutter that consultative business. I want them to keep doing it because they already have that consultative mindset. Whether they know it or not, they're actually better suited to understand how to find product market fit than someone who hops right into software and just starts thinking about scale and the 90 some percent margins of SaaS. And so even with the SDR, like absolutely Louisville and everywhere, Nashville, other places could use more people trained up on more of those roles that can help a highly scalable organization achieve its objectives. But you got to first determine whether you've got something that's highly scalable. And of all the potential customers in the world that could benefit from what you're doing, there are a few, a subset where the characteristics and the behaviors will make it relatively more likely that you will have a higher likelihood of winning a higher amount of revenue. Let's dial all our energy into identifying that and then only scale in that direction. So I tell my founders, if your total addressable market was the periodic table of elements, our goal right now is to identify the subatomic particle of one of those elements. That's where the journey begins. Um, So, anyway,
1: makes sense. And you know, I've experienced that before Um, at Fuji. You know, we thought we had this go-to-market fit. Uh, We raised two million dollars, and we hired a lot of salespeople with no data. And what happened? Well, we ran out of money Uh, because we we went to market hard, very hard. We opened an office in Los Angeles, very expensive to do. Uh, We thought we had this fit. We hired a lot of salespeople, didn't have it. Ran out of money. So I, you got I've, been, it. I mean, I've been right there.
2: And you know it. And and listen, I don't know if it's going to make you feel better, but you're not alone. Yeah. Right? You, you You could join a large group of founders in this world who will admit. And by the way, the reason that mistake is so often made is because it's a very logical thing you did. What you did, if you haven't been trained on understanding how to bring innovation to market— Your decision makes all the sense in the world. Of course, that was what you would do. You're starting to do something. And what do you need? You need more people to sell it. So you bring on a bunch of salespeople. The problem is it's stage irrelevant salespeople. For you in the audience, if you haven't read Mark Leslie's seminal work on the sales learning curve, I encourage everybody to do it. It'll take you no time. Google, Harvard Business Review, Sales Learning Curve, Mark Leslie. Mark's the founder of Veritas Software. He pioneered the notion of the sales learning curve. And what he calls the renaissance rep, we call the market developer, which is why we call it market development. And here's the primary difference. Sales, what you guys did is you hired people to pursue revenue for the purpose of profit but learning precedes revenue. And so market development is the pursuit of revenue for the purpose of learning. And so rather than pursuing salespeople, you wanted to pursue market developers or what Mark Leslie calls the Renaissance rep. And I'll tell you, you're going to smile and nod your head and shake your head when you read that article, because you're going to see the choices and the decisions and that mistake that you made in Mark's article. And he does such a great job in that article of helping founders understand relatively quickly why you don't want to make that decision. The characteristics, the behaviors, not so much the skill sets and the experience and the customer relationships are what you're looking for at the early pre-product market fit stage. That's what he calls that renaissance rep and we call the market developer.
0: Yeah. And let's uh, let's talk about, you know, the base layer of all this, of the salespeople. Let's talk about what kind of traits actually make for people who have that kind of innate ability to be good at sales. What are some traits that you see whenever you're working with founders and with these companies that are doing this well?
2: Honestly, I'll go back to that one thing that we repeat often is learn it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for, for me, from,
0: from from good my listeners. perspective with uh, with working at the startup that I'm at, yeah, I think the two reason. base traits that you know, help us with our go to market strategy and, and product market fit is just really good communication on both ends. You have to be able to communicate well with the customer, but you also have to be able to ask the questions to help the customer communicate back just as well with you so that you can get that key amen. understanding of you know what they need and what, what's valuable to them as you're kind of amen. going down this this map. So yeah, that, that uh, all resonates with me.
2: One of my dearest friends in the world used to work for the CMO of Coca-Cola. God, and the name of Sergio Zeman. She taught me something that has stuck with me ever since. And this is something that she learned from Sergio, one of the world's renowned marketers. Everything communicates. Everything communicates. Part of doing what you're talking about, what you're talking about is understanding how to pick up the signals that are already being communicated. And part of it is as a person and as a company and as a brand, know that everything communicates. My definition of brand is promise of experience. That's what a brand means. Everything that I do communicates. Am I communicating in a way that's consistent with the promise of experience that I want people to have with me and my brand? The other side of that is everything communicates to you as well. And so 100% agree with what you just said. If you understand how to have the conversation, by the way, right? It's not about features and functions. It's about people and their problems. So it starts there. No, don't start your call off with your demo. For heaven's sake. No, put your features and functions back in your pocket. I'm not interested, right? If you're interacting and understanding. And you're training your ear and you're coming in with a mindset that selling is helping. That's what it is. The best way to be a seller is to show up as a buyer. And with some training, you can understand how to enable the conversation, right? What I like to say is you send out invitations and you wait for the RSVP. And if you're if you understand how to read between the lines and appreciate that everything communicates, you can pick up the signals and you can track them back to whether this is someone who's qualified to have your time. Because that's another challenge that many founders make. We feel like we need to qualify ourselves to earn the right to talk to this person. But no, they also have to earn the right to talk to us. Right. One of the biggest challenges when we work with founders at the early stage, and this is part of the traits, is they try to solve for the top of the funnel when they should solve for the bottom of the funnel. The whole exercise when you start going to market is about disqualification, not qualification. Right. Startups die more often of overeating than starvation. Period. And so the trait, as you also said, right, is. Understanding how to listen, um, understanding how to engage around problem, which is called design centricity, design thinking, right? Um, Engaging in a way that enables you to think about whether this is someone who you should be working with right now. It may work; you may work with them later, but it's about right now, right? We teach our founders that when you're doing sales at the early stage, you're not looking for Mister Right. You're looking for Mr. Right Now. And that doesn't mean you delete people from the database. It just means you put them on a different kind of campaign. And instead of trying to attract them now, you're trying to nurture them later, which is why it's called an attraction framework and a nurture framework, right? People who are setting aside their ego, people who have an insatiable curiosity for learning, right? People who have an appetite for risk, people who have an appetite for uncertainty people who like creating the playbook not reading the playbook people that like under you know figuring out where the process needs to come later not stepping into something that has a process already those are the characteristics of the market developer those are the ones that do the best and if you think about it it's just the scientific method we teach our founders that they are business scientists and they have a hypothesis And the hypothesis comes from their intelligence, their intellect, their experience, their intuition, their relationships. And just like a scientist doesn't walk into a laboratory, throw some shit in a petri dish and wonder what happened. No, they walk in with a hypothesis. And by the way, scientists are not looking to prove themselves right. They're just simply searching for the truth. And so as a founder, You're not looking for product market fit, you're looking for the truth, right? And you wanna get there in the most efficient way possible. And so with intention and framework and structure, you form a hypothesis, you run an experiment, you analyze what happened from that experiment and you make decisions based on that. And just that alone saves a significant amount of time and capital. Because you're going to market with intent. You're not improvising. Um, And that's really, really, really important. Right? You don't ever want to bring emotion to a data fight.
1: Yeah. That's
0: that's a good quote right there. Um, So... You know, as we talk about all of these, these sales and the traits that make for, for good salespeople, a conversation that Evan, so Evan has kind of been a a good mentor for me as I get into startup sales, you know, he was there when he was younger at Fuji doing the same thing. And one of the things that he, he's kind of talked to me about is, you know, the importance of content marketing and essentially scaling your salespeople. So talk about what you see, the, the companies that you guys invest in, what the ones who do it well, uh, what are, what are some of the things they're doing well? in order to really nail that content marketing strategy.
2: Yeah, um, this is one of my favorite subjects. As I mentioned earlier, I was privileged to spend some time as publisher of Reuters News. You know, that's media at scale. Um, During my time as publisher, we produced content the equivalent in length to the Old and New Testament combined every day. Oh my god! Every (laughs) single day. That's crazy. (laughs) That's content at scale. But but Reuters is a media company, and they have a massive budget and a history to be a media company. But what I love about your question is something that I've preached since that time, which is the age of information. Every company is in part a media company. And that means that each of us as founders are in part publishers. And so one of the things that we were kind of talking about, um, you know, pre-recording today was that creation of content or how do you scale the value you're getting out of the content you're already creating. Content marketing is critical no matter what you're doing, because the role of the salesperson has been shifted to decision time. We are not educating ourselves with salespeople anymore. We are self-educating ourselves. Um, as Clay Shirky, one of my favorite writers about the age of information, has 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 written about and talked about, the aggregation, the dissemination, the creation of information has been made so extraordinary. It's so much easy for all the reasons we know now, for any one of us to now in part behave like a media company. We're no longer limited by the people who buy their paper by the pound and their ink by the gallon, right? And so all of this where customers are now self-educating themselves nearly entirely, or if entirely towards purchase, how are you out there helping? And it's perfect because it's right in line with what we're saying. Selling always has been helping. How do you help someone accomplish an objective that's consistent and a fit with where your solution fits and helps people, right? And the best way to do that is to put useful information out there for people to nurture themselves. You know, back to one of the things we were talking about and very relevant here, the SPIN framework, right? Um, we, we, We are massive fans of Dr. Neil Rackham and the SPIN framework. SPIN as an acronym, Situation, Problem, Implication, Needs, Payoff the leading reason why conversations end in no and not yes is the salesperson skips over the recognition of need phase, right? And that's because they forget they have two ears and only one mouth, right? And and Dr. Rack improved that empirically. And so what content marketing enables you to do is enables you to connect with people who recognize that they have something that they're looking to solve and sets you up as someone who's in a position to appreciate that and to help them. And then, and only then will they begin to search for alternatives for options on how to solve the need that they recognize they have. And because content marketing yours has been helpful, you're in what's called the decision space. When they go to solve their problem. And you know what? There are so many ways nowadays to do contenting at scale for the same reason you were talking about Twilio and MongoDB or other co- no code or low code tools and Zapier and Google Drive and Gmas and HubSpot. There are so many ways with relatively little effort for you to put out something helpful in a way that enables your customers to nurture yourself themselves towards you, to be able to raise their hand and say, I'm qualified to have your time founder, because I have this need that I recognize, and I suspect you might be able to help me. Let's have a conversation about that, right. And so, you know, to me, one of the largest mistakes that founders make, and, and frankly, every company that attempts to do content marketing makes is they really focus on the content creation. They think the challenge they need to first solve is the creation of content, when the reality is they're already creating content, right? This podcast is a podcast rather is a perfect example, right? I'm making the utility recording of this podcast right now. I could take that recording. I could upload it to Google Drive, which costs me no money. I could use the Upworker who I love, which costs me very little money. They're doing something that they love doing. They're making money out of it while being at home and being present with their family. I'm getting the help that I need. I'm not creating a single amount of additional content. I'm already spending this time with you and your audience. They grab my utility recording and they write a blog post about it. 1,200 words, 1,400 words from it. But then what they do is they slice it and dice it down to a bunch of 300 words because you have snack bites and you have long form. So the 1,400 words is going to have some insight and analysis. They'll add to this conversation some links. We might go in deeper into a specific subject. We might create a whole post about SPIN framework and what it means to the early stage, giving credit to everybody where credit's due because the things that we do, we're built on the the shoulders of giants like Dr. Neil Rackham. We might take some of these little bites that we've enjoyed today and flip them out as a tweet or create a LinkedIn post. I haven't spent a single extra minute beyond the time we're spending together, but the value that I've extracted from this content is extraordinary. And so the number one mistake I find that founders and businesses make is they focus on creating more content when they're only extracting a relatively small amount of the value of the content they're already creating. It's like the the founder uh, who's um, building something with an, an engaged audience and through digital marketing, they're spending all of their money on Google AdWords and other techniques in order to build a large audience. But what they should be focusing on is not a large audience, but a large engaged audience. And so the first thing that you do is you figure out how to get the engagement metrics right. And through that, figure out who the right audience members are to add so you ultimately end up with a large engaged audience. Same thing, let's extract more value out of the content we're already creating before we go on to create more content.
1: Makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I've got, got a selfish question here. So I'm personally about to launch a product You know, in the next, you know, several weeks, Um, uh, what is some advice for a company like mine, uh, to be launching a product and get, so what we're going to do is we're gonna get some early, early signups before the product's done. We're going to show, you know, we're going to have a website, launch a a landing page, and we're going to get some early signups and have a beta program. What's some advice to somebody in that, in that position about to launch that, uh, that landing page to get some early users and the product, you know, is on the way. Talk about what you see there.
2: Awesome. Uh, and congrats. That's amazing. I'm um, really, I think that's, a, that's a big milestone. I hope you guys are like, you know, celebrating no, and soaking pop- that in because I, I know you're going to beat yourself up when're when you're, when you're making mistakes. So when you're doing something that's amazing, like launching that product, make sure you're celebrating. Listen, the first thing I would say is back to that scientist, do not launch that product. Do not launch that landing page. Do not launch that campaign unless you first have a hypothesis that you have written down about what you expect to happen based on your intelligence and intellect and experience and relationships and judgment. What of all the types of users that might get benefit from that product, which are the users that you think would be the ones that should most likely be interested right now in your product, not your product roadmap, never sell your product roadmap, only ever sell your product. And never pretend to be at a stage you're not at. You're just launching your product. You're at the beginning of the journey. You're looking for people that understand that. And frankly, are pretty geeked up to be working with someone who's at the stage you're at. They're an early adopter. You You got it. Innovator and early adopter. You got it. So if you haven't formed and written down a hypothesis, then you're not ready. Because you are important and your time is important. And what you're doing is important. So treat it that way. Right? Form the hypothesis so that when you run a test, you can learn from it compared to what you thought was going to happen. And by doing so, rather than a landing page that's useful to everybody, have the courage and the founder conviction to make a landing page that's only relevant to a few so that it can be highly relevant. And it's not throwing shit up on a wall and seeing what sticks, because I know how easy it is to just launch multiple landing pages right now. It still means that it starts with a hypothesis. And so of all the potential people in your total addressable market, based on what you know now, form the hypothesis of the characteristics down to the customer level, not the industry sector and company level, the customer level focused on their problem, what's the one where your value statement, your value proposition, and your product, not your product roadmap, would be more likely to be more interesting and more effective right now. And launch your landing page with language geared to that problem and that person. And then measure the results. And stop when you, and by the way, it doesn't have to just be one, it can be a few. Right. But then stop and collect the information and determine what you've learned and now begin engaging with those people. Because what you're doing is called the attraction framework. And all those initial signups are is a statement. Remember, you're sending an invitation, and the RSVP from your initial users is I'm interested, tell me more. That's it. Now you're done. Off the landing page. Now you're onto a different framework. And so all you're trying to do is say, who's the relevant person based on everybody that might be relevant? Who are the few most relevant? You're going to have to exercise judgment here. Who are the few most relevant? Send them an invitation. And when they say, I'm interested, tell me more. Start working with them in a way that's highly non-scalable. No landing page, no HubSpot, no CRM, no SDR, none of that. Just Consultative conversations to, and using the SPIN framework to understand their entire customer journey to where they are and to where you are now. How they think about the problem, what attracted them, what they're working on, and is there a way for what you're doing to help them in some, you know, you know, tangible way, where you can use it for the purpose of learning, not for the purpose of profit. So again, you don't have to worry about how expensive it was to acquire them or how expensive it was to meet with them several times. You don't have, you don't care about that because you're not running a formula to show where you're up and to the right and scaled at nine figures. You're just learning to figure out where you want to dial in and hit, you know, hit the gas pedal.
0: That's yeah, total sense. Abs- that absolutely. And, you know, this has already been just a wealth of of really valuable information and this is one that I'm going to want to go back and listen to just for my own personal benefit and probably take notes on Um, but one question we had written down here that it it kind of got me thinking about my early days of trying to get business experience and sales experience when I was in college I started this little tiny more of a side hustle uh, drone company to drone videography and photography and one of the earliest lessons I learned about it I uh, was trying to find what I should be charging for my services, and yeah, of course, yeah. you know, I was I was young, a little insecure about what I was doing, and I was way undercharged for him to start off. Um, so, what are some things that founders can be doing to ensure that they're getting that that price that is a balanced price of you know providing the value for the customer, but also giving that the value that uh, the, the startup should be receiving?
2: Yeah, I, you know, the pricing is vexing for everybody. Uh, you know, there's no mathematical formula or magic wand. Um, um, you know, our definition of a startup is an experiment in search of a business model. And so, you know, part of that is the pricing experiments. Um, there's definitely some some structured and well-known ways you can experiment. The first thing I'll say is I'm just going to repeat exactly what I just said. Form a hypothesis, right? So when you're thinking about pricing, there are There are ways, again, back to everything communicates. What are the signals out there? One of our most favorite exercises that founders most often either don't do or just do and the skim is competitive landscape analysis. Your competitors all over the world have spent a lot of their time and money trying to figure this out. That's one way you can start figuring it out. And by the way, right, what's the number one competitor? to every startup status quo, right? If you ever try to change another human's behavior, you know that to be true. And so when I talk about competitors, you have to include their current behaviors. So if there is a recognition of need that they are trying to solve right now, how are they doing that, right? So how are they currently spending money to solve their problem? And that's one element of being able to start to set pricing. Another element is just value-based, right? You know that the problem is costing a certain amount of money. And if you can show a quick payback period because of the value that you're generating relative to the cost of what you're charging, you can also begin to get a sense of how much that you can charge, right? And so, you know, you know, one example is oftentimes um, the software is replacing or supplementing or helping a human. Well, you know, how much does that human cost, right? Where there are humans involved in solving the problem, to your drone example, right? What were they doing at that time? I mean, I, I looked very early on at a company that was in Texas that was using drones, but it was just to uh, do preventive maintenance on windmills. And that's because it was hugely expensive and risky with insurance to get a person to shimmy up to the top of the tippity top to fit. And right. And so what happens is that, there- For preventive maintenance, you could put a monetary value on how much money that would solve, but there was just not enough preventive maintenance going on. And then the cost of either doing the preventive maintenance or the actual maintenance, right? So in that example, we were able, or that founder was able to show us the literal cost to do as best as they could without the technology. But then on top of it, they were also able to show what the technology could do that wasn't even possible at this point. And this is one of the reasons that we love B2B because it's so much more relatively simple than B2C because it typically doesn't involve nearly as much emotion businesses buy for one of four reasons and only four reasons alone. And so when you're thinking about pricing and thinking about value proposition, you have to be thinking about why people buy businesses. And by the way, businesses don't buy anything people buy. So when I talk about why businesses buy, I'm talking about the people inside of those companies who have real objectives that will measure them to determine whether they are fired, promoted, whatever. Make money, save money, keep or create a competitive advantage, or stay out of jail. Regulatory, right? We love the regulatory value proposition, right? So you know right away, if you've done your homework and you're going intentionally to market, whether it is one or a few of, make money, save money, stay at a jail, create or, compete, or keep a competitive advantage. And now you can start reverse engineering the, either the opportunity cost or the real cost to do or not do those things based on their current sets of behaviors. And you can begin to sense a rough idea of what they're spending or what they're losing And now you can either you can start fitting in your price as a as a reasonable percentage of the savings or showing them the payback period because of the money they're going to be making. Right. Like one of our favorite attraction framework outbound campaigns is where you can say with a little bit of ROI, you know, we help companies like yours solve your problem and pay for the cost of our product within x amount of time like the right person's going to lean in and want to get on the phone with you if you send them that email
1: yeah I, i've been taking notes I and mean, you've been saying so many <laughs> so many great things i'm sitting here taking notes we're preaching own, the gospel during to go my to during my own podcast which uh is which is awesome i love that this is, this is such a cool experience and, and i love this conversation because i'm very passionate about sales and go to market and it's just what i what i love talking about um so sadly we're going to have to transition to conversation but let's transition to something I'm also very excited about, which is this region of the United States. Uh, let's yeah. talk about Nashville. Um, sure. You know, a lot of our guests and a lot of our focus, you know, as we're building, you know, our listener base purposefully has been in Kentucky, Lexington, Louisville, you know, we've got to build that base. You know, we're to a stage now where we're wanting to branch out a little bit, put some testers out and see, you know, can we create, grab some more audience? And we really wanted to t- test Nashville and talk about Nashville and shed some light on Nashville people here in Kentucky because it's booming. You know, I I love going to Nashville to Broadway. Oh yeah, uh, you know we love going to Broadway and to concerts <laughs> and to games there and the SEC tournament. Uh, so we're very familiar with Nashville. From ah, that.
2: remember those old days when you could do those yes. things?
1: Yep, remember very well. Uh, so we love going to Nashville for entertainment purposes. But I'm really looking looking forward to talking about it from a startup and technology perspective right now. What it, first off, you talked about it briefly. What are you seeing in Nashville from a tech, tech uh, technology startup perspective right now? Um, you know, Amazon's moving in, so I'm sure that that's going to be a big help as the years go on. But what are you seeing right now uh, as far as Nashville? Goes? Yeah.
2: And uh, listen, I'm definitely among the the, the the cohort of people that believe that Amazon being here is a great thing. Um, is a hundred percent of what they're doing going to be great? No, but I mean, will there be some consequences, you know, you know, some, some consequences to the economy and, and to pricing? Yes. But I think, Thoughtful, proactive, smart leadership—you um, know—in uh, the state um, and 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 in the city—can um, help minimize that impact. Uh, most especially, and to me, most importantly, making sure that the wealth creation is is not just being enjoyed um, by a, a relatively small number of people, but it's it's something that more people can enjoy. Um, you know, one of my strongest beliefs about technology and about the rise of entrepreneurism globally um, is that it enables families to create economic security and communities to create jobs. Um, and when that happens, um, you naturally find happiness and peacefulness um, follow. Uh, and so I, I think, you know, as long as you. Um, more people than traditionally have been able to enjoy the fruits of the benefits are enjoying it to me it's a it it really is nets out in a major positive way the people that amazon uh, are recruiting here um, are not just going to work for amazon the rest of their lives Um, there many of them are going to leave and take what they've been uh, blessed to learn through amazon and apply it to an early stage company um, or they're going to join a, a local business um, and help them further grow or they may join or start their own company um, you know one of the things to me that's the most interesting about Nashville and attractive which was which is why I chose to move my family here is you know I really I really do believe that, you know, we have a density of, of entrepreneurs and population here that rivals if not best Silicon Valley. Um, and, and though many of our entrepreneurs um, self self identify as songwriters, um, and, um, and studio musicians, or, uh, or others in the music industry, make no mistake, that's the maker class you know, those are entrepreneurs, even though they don't use that word. Um, And so, you know, in addition to, of course, the, you know, true entrepreneurs, you know, that have, you know, fueled, you know, the economy here and created a massive amount of wealth um, in the health tech space, in addition to because we are the Athens of the South, you know, why the Parthenon was built here, right? Why did it become known as the Athens of the South? Because of so much education, so many colleges and universities, and not just Vanderbilt University and Belmont University and Lipscomb University, but we are also blessed to have two historically black colleges and universities in Nashville. That's extraordinary, right? And so you have this, constant influx of young, high energy talent that's being enabled by so many institutions with so many different types of skill sets to go in so many different directions. And because all that's happening at once in what you've suggested, which is definitely true a very fun place where people live because they love it here, people aren't coming and leaving. It's for education. Um, You know, the sons and daughters and their spouses are moving home. The companies like Amazon um, or others from New York City are moving here. and, And they're also bringing, you know, the richness of their diversity, you know, to mingle with the richness of the diversity of Nashville just to create, you know, a really exciting place to be. And all of that is really the nutrients that an ecosystem for entrepreneurs need. That's what goes into the soil to start that ecosystem starting. I mean, this place is awash with been there, done that experience. And you know the way that people think in this part of the country, you know, very involved in their community. Very deep roots in their community, people who believe deeply in investing and reinvesting in their community, and are doing so in ways that now also include, you know, helping that, you know, not just a technology class, that highly scalable business opportunity, but all types of businesses. And so, my hope is that the narrative that leaks out of Silicon Valley won't necessarily infect Louisville and Nashville and Cincinnati and other places that we can benefit from learning from what Silicon Valley has done for so long and where the density of it is being done, but we can make our own version of it. Even the word entrepreneur, I mean, guys, you know, we're talking about a small business owner, right? The idea of a startup, that's just a, a small business. And so if, if we can, if we can kind of set aside some of those terms that, that take us more of in a fantastical or, or theatrical definition and direction and just focus on small business owners looking to create jobs and build prosperity and some of whom have an opportunity because of technology to do it at a massive scale um, and just bring our resources together both publicly and privately to do that. You know, I I, uh, I just think uh, I think there's just a world of opportunity. I definitely think the governor in your state is doing that. I definitely think he's brought together a team in economic development that wants to do that. I've been having some really incredible conversations with folks, um, both, you know, in economic development in Kentucky, as well as with the people in Louisville, and not just Indianapolis, like, so I've heard, I've heard it, right? I've had a conversation with so many founders in, um, in Louisville, that feel like there's so many things happening outside of Louisville and Kentucky, but why isn't it happening as much in Louisville, But it is starting to happen. So part of it is just connecting it up. That's one of the reasons I'm so excited um, and so privileged to, 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 to help in any way. Jane at the Entrepreneur Center here in Nashville is she has done such a remarkably good job of bringing the cohesiveness to what had been a fairly disparate entrepreneurial ecosystem in Nashville. And that's so much of what needs to happen is is bringing it together and getting people rowing in the same direction and not just sitting in co-working spaces or their homes, wondering why they're the only ones or wondering why there's not more folks doing it. And I guess the last thing I'll say is, you know, the reason that we do what we do and what we're seeing happen around the world now in the cities and the communities that we're privileged to be a part of is more investment is coming off of the sidelines. Because the investment, the the, the wealth that's currently sitting on the sidelines in Louisville, older money and different asset class money, when you ask them to show up to a pitch event that just seems more like it's Broadway theater than it is business development, right? When, When you ask them to invest at an unreasonably high valuation. And not only do they not get ownership, but they get a piece of paper that says you might someday get ownership, but maybe you won't with a founder who can't answer the even most basic questions on who their customers are. And you wonder why the wealth is sitting on the sidelines. And so what we're doing is we're just speaking in the language of business and offering insights on how we're helping small business owners with highly scalable opportunities find their fit in the market and investors can have an insight and inside information with which to trade on that early and benefit from it. Angels are coming off the sidelines.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's all we we see a lot of that going on around these this area as well. So thanks for sharing that with us. And you know, I'm I'm excited to try and dive more into Louisville because it sounds like there's a lot of awesome stuff going on there. I've actually had gotten to meet Jane through a common connection of ours, right? When I was uh, trying to decide what my next move was going to be, I was considering Nashville and got to talk to, to Jane about coming down there and getting involved in the startup awesome. community. So she's, she is doing some great things down there through that center for entrepreneurship. Um, but as we always do, we like to end on a, a forward looking statement. Um, so kind of give us the, the forward looking statement on where you see Nashville going into the future, um, as it relates to growth X and as it relates to just the startup and technology scene in general.
2: You know, I think if I would boil it down to one thing, it's, it's diversifying the hugely successful basket we currently have. You know, uh, there, there's just no questioning um, that there's an, a massive, massive um, ecosystem of health tech founders and funders here. Um, and that will continue to be one of the richest, most exciting places to build health tech companies now. How can we continue to add beyond health tech? How can we continue to capture music and not cede that to Los Angeles? How can we continue to build in just SaaS generally and capture other industries and sectors in the way that Chattanooga has done so successful with logistics? And so that's what I see. That's my forward-looking thought. Is we're going to see Nashville continue to achieve the level of massive success that we've had in health tech, but in other tech-driven areas of of startups.
0: Love that. Well, thank you so much for coming on here. Like we've said multiple times, this has been so valuable uh, for Evan and I, who are both involved in, in startup and technology sales. So, like I said, I'll be excited to go back and re-listen to this one. Uh, but again, thanks for coming on and sharing all this with us. Uh, this has been this has been great.
2: Pleasure is mine, guys. I'm grateful for the opportunity uh, to not only continue to get the two, of, you know, the two of you to be useful to your audience, and I, I really hope to hear from someone. So thank you both for the opportunity.
0: Absolutely. And if, uh, if any of our listeners uh, would like to get involved with Growth, GrowthX, what, what can they do to, to do that?
2: Best way is they can certainly drop a note to hello at growthx.com. Um, They can check out uh, mxponline.growthx.com. That's how founders find product market fit and we find investment opportunities.